and wash your heart with the real, the real Father. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. And I'm going to add my child. Be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to Father. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Mm. Be anxious for nothing, my child. Mm. And everything, prayer, supplication, let your request be known to Abba, to your Abba. His source, He delights. It is His good pleasure, Jesus says. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom so that the peace, that elusive, elusive peace in a broken place, that His peace it surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart. So I release the blessing, the healing of Abba over you. That you are welcome in His presence. Thank you, Lord, for breaking the, the power of fear, anxiety, anxious thoughts, guilt with your kindness may the power of the Holy Spirit come over you now in Jesus mighty name I pray Amen Yeah, you're you're on the money. It's just it's just the Hey no, you're gonna go Send them to you also, so you can hit the link. Thank you. Everybody get one. Ah. 
Yeah. Well, hey, Janet, can I have one? Yes. I thought I had one. I didn't. Thank you, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. Very familiar story. Oh, that's, a, that's cool. You guys got your Bibles? That's a good thing. Okay, so without question, the most important revelation that we need to have in our lives is the revelation of God as our Father, how much He loves us, how much He pursues us, because um, it is a revelation of our Father that tells us who we are, gives us our identity, it ascribes to us our value our worth. It is the revelation of the Father that connects us to other believers into family so that we have an ongoing conduit of His love. And it's the Father's heart that unleashes our destinies. So, knowing the Father, knowing how He feels, knowing who He is, knowing who He is to us, is the central key to walking on the planet well in the kingdom. Jesus' number one assignment, he said this about his assignment, my assignment is to both bring you to the Father by dying your death and to reveal the Father. And it says, and to keep on revealing the Father. That's what it says in the Gospel of John. So Jesus' desire is to unveil the Father to you. And that's why he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. So his his big messages during his earthly ministry had to do with who the Father was and what the Father's kingdom was doing on the earth. It was one of the central emphases of Christ. And it still is. It hasn't gone away. So why not take today as Father's Day to focus a little bit on Father and ask the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit to unmask, unveil what God's like. So Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we could see your face, Daddy. We could know what you're really like. That you would dissolve all deception that's accumulated in our hearts. And that we could have a pure, unbroken communion with you as our Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this passage starts off in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Which is interesting because Christ had this way of attracting wounded, broken, sinful people. He was uh, attractive. He was magnetic. There was an irresistible love about him that caused people to sense that they were wanted and, and important and delighted in. But it says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here we are, 
um, with a, uh, the second group of people um, gathered in that setting. We had the first group, which were the unrighteous, and the second group were the self-righteous. And the self-righteous felt it was important that they judge and criticize the other group because they perceive themselves to be in right standing with God based upon their performance. Then Jesus told them this parable. So now he's, he's going to unwrap this scenario and unveil it like he does so well. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he calls it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Notice here, Jesus is describing a shepherd that pursues even the weakest of all sheep. That he will, in a way, leave the flock vulnerable because they're with each other to go after one because he's an all-pursuing God. He will never, never let anyone wander off without going after them. He's going to pull them back in. Now when he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. That's a good moment. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and they say, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Tongue in cheek. Alright, keep going. I'm not going to go to the lost coin. I'm going to go to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. Notice that this is a story about a man with two sons. It's about the man. And everyone has made the story about a prodigal son, but really the story is being told about a certain kind of man who happens to be a father. So this story is about the prodigal father. Before I read the rest of the story, I want to define prodigal to you. Prodigal, the word prodigal, means recklessly spendthrifty. It means to spend up until you have nothing left. It's an abandonment. It's a reckless abandon. It's an, a willingness to expend everything you have for the sake of someone else. That's a prodigal. We've seen it in light of um, reckless sensual spending. But in reality, the story isn't about a son. It's about a reckless, abandoned, pursuing father. How fun is that? So I would commend to you a book that is probably the best book I've ever read on Luke chapter 15, The Prodigal. It calls The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. That is in your, your notes. Highly commended. It will rock your world. So the prodigal father was reckless. And he was abandoned because he refused to reckon or account to account sin against his younger son or demand repayment. So let's get to the story. The younger one said to the father, Give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. Now that request, by the way, is highly insulting. In essence, it says, I would prefer you dead because what I really like is the inheritance more than I like you. And I want what I, what's, what I have coming to me. So you're dispensable. But I want what's coming to me. So would you just, would you just not make me wait around until your death? Because really, I just want my stuff. In the Hebraic culture, nothing could be more insulting because a father grooms a son to one, enjoy his presence, and two, to pick up the family business, the family inheritance, and to keep not just maintaining it, but to expand it. This son had neither intent. He did not want his dad, nor did he really want the family farm and the vision of the house. He wanted to draw everything to himself and live in this narcissistic, hedonistic moment of self-indulgence. He had an agenda. He did not have a vision of generational transfer. He had a desire for his own life to be lived in the way he wanted to live it, detached from his dad. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, that's so he wouldn't be scrutinized by the neighbors. And there he squandered his wealth in, the, in wild living. And after he had spent everything, uh, there, there was that reckless spending. There you go, the, the prodigal piece. After reckless spending of everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. Now I think that was a setup from heaven because now that he was at the end of this rope, the Lord turned up the heat. If the, if the climate would have been good, he might have sustained himself with soul power. But God knew what was in the best interest of this kid and he, he upped the pressure. Wasn't that nice of God? So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And for a Jewish person, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything more hideous than feed a, an unclean animal, right? Pigs were not eaten by Jews. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything, and if he would have stolen the pig food, he would have been in trouble. <laughs> so he was, he not only the insult to injury, he was, he was working with unclean animals. He was the servant of a pig. In other words, he was less valuable than a pig itself, because not even pig food could come his way. He wasn't even worthy of pig, pig food. So when he came to his census, what a great statement. When it dawned on him that his choices were pretty seriously off base, he said, how many of my father's hired men at least have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, notice that in this prayer, um, he did recognize that he'd sinned against his father, but his primary motive wasn't his father and reconciliation with his father. His primary motive was survival. So, you know, people repent for a thousand reasons, and all of them will get you forward in life. Any form of repentance works, okay? And even if his motives weren't perfect and pure, it set him on the right trajectory back to his dad. So while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In Hebraic culture, in Hebraic culture, um, it was a super undignified thing to hike up your robe and take off running after someone who had disgraced the family. That, that, that was unheard of. But this father's love overrode protocol and cultural niceties and his own pride. His love was greater than the humiliation of what his son had done and the disgrace of his son. He said, I really don't care what the neighbors think. I don't care what's, what my son has done. I've got my son and that's all that matters. My son didn't want me. Now my son wants me. And I see him coming toward me. So for whatever reason, I'm going to get my son back. And, but the gospel had not yet hit the son's heart yet. The father throws his arms around him and kisses him. And he's evidencing the gospel. But the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. By the way, when we do sin against our natural dads, we do sin against our, our heavenly father. So he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. Now I'm going to pause there. In Hebraic culture, the definition of death is relational disconnect. That's also the definition of sin. Sin is not just moral failure. Sin is 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 a relational breakdown to where there's a severance of life with God and life with God's people. And the wages of sin is death. Remember that verse in Romans. So, for example, if I were to go out to that tree outside my house and sever the branch off the tree, what would be the result of on the branch. Death. And it wouldn't look dead immediately because there's still some residual moisture in the branch. But for all intents and purposes, it's dead. The minute there's a severing of a relationship, there is death. 
Because the life juice of the sap of the tree can no longer be conducted through the porous membranes of that branch and that tree. So what the Bible teaches is when we disconnect relationally from our God who was our Father, when we disconnect relationally from the family of God, Christ and Christ's body are inseparable. When we sever or pull back away from Father and Son and family, we are effectually, spiritually dead. That is the definition of dead because the flow of spiritual life, the energy of God, cannot be conducted unless there's divine connection. So that makes the word covenant so critically important. Covenant is a quality connection of oneness where we are knit and bonded at heart, mind, and life level with God and each other. And that allows this, the, the sap of heaven the juice of God to flow through him to us. So the father says, great theology. My son was dead. He wasn't dead physically. He wasn't dead in his soul, but he was dead spiritually because there is no life apart from father. Now most people are walking the planet as orphans and you can be an unrighteous orphan Or as we're going to find out in a minute, you can be a self-righteous orphan. And an orphan is someone that lives without a conscious awareness of an intimate relationship with Father. And you can do that as an unrighteous person or as a self-righteous person that believes religion and keeping rules and being good is really the point. And that makes you a self-righteous orphan. Performing you know, thinking that by performing and being good, you have, you have gotten a relationship with God. Okay? The point isn't hedonism or rule-keeping self-righteousness. The point is intimacy with Father. Do you see the point of this parable now? Alright? We had two sons. Both chose to disconnect from their dad and the family and the family business. But it was on different way, for different reasons. And you'll see in a minute here more. So the father says, reinstate my son back into family status. And he did that by saying, bring the best robe. Okay, this is the family outfit. Bring the ring and put a ring on his finger. Now this was a signet ring. It was a, it was a, a, a ring designed to cut deals on behalf of the family. Do you guys remember watching medieval movies where the king would write on a parchment some kingly edict? They would roll it up and they would drip wax on the parchment and then the king would take the ring or take and stamp the wax to validate its legitimacy because he had the country credit card. The ring was the family credit card. To cut deals on behalf of the family. That's the signet ring. That he reinstated the son to full sonship status to act on behalf of the family. And what did the son do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. Except he came back. Nothing 
but he came back. Now here's what needed to happen. The son begins to realize at this moment when a party's being thrown, the fatted calf, uh, bring the fatted calf and kill it. This was an animal set aside to keep the family alive. It wasn't set aside for a party. It was set aside for survival. But the father was so happy about the essence of life, which is relationships, he said, intimacy is more important than survival. So let's have a party. And one way or another, God will provide another fatted calf to feed us later. Let's break it out. Let's recognize that we're back. We've had repentance. And we're back into unity again. Now it was at this moment where the gospel hits the sun. And he realizes this life is not about pleasure. Life isn't even about performance. Life is about intimacy. And my dad loved me apart from what he thought he could get out of me or what my role was. It's just pure love. And when that gospel of grace hits the sun, we have a whole new game in town. So, what did they do? Uh, they brought the fatted calf. They butchered it. They made great steaks and barbecue. And let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to party, to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. He says, your, your brother's come. And your father has killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. He was pouting outside on strike, which was exposing his true motives, right? So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Emphasis on slaving. Dutiful performance. It wasn't in my heart. I was, I was um, building my bank, uh, my bank account of credibility to show and prove that I deserve what I'm going to get. There's no grace in this. It's all performance. And so, he goes, I've been slaving for you. I didn't disobey your orders. I've been a good boy. Um, yet, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. See, that never even dawned on his dad because he thought, why party? You got me. He goes, but when his son of yours, but when this son of yours has, who squandered your property, let me remind you of this son's sin. This is what Pharisees love to do. They love to identify and isolate people's, other people's sins. They love to rehearse the um, illegitimacy and the lack of deserving of other people. They love to be critical and become experts on other people's wrongdoings. So let me remind you, he squandered your property, and not just squandered it, he did it with prostitutes. Remember? How disgusting. That's a crime worthy of death. 
But here, this infidel, you kill the fatted calf for him. By the way, I think that's a symbol of Jesus Christ. Christ was killed. The blood was shed on behalf of us. That was a symbol in this story of Christ. Blood was shed for, for a symbol of restoration. My son, the father says, you are always with me. See, that's where life is. And everything I have is yours. More importantly, I am yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, so, first of all, one of the big things I think God wants to do right now is to dissolve this deception that sets up in the hearts of us that God doesn't pursue us and God doesn't love us and that He isn't pursuing or He isn't loving. And um, this, this is a, a demonic conspiracy to weaken your understanding of what God's really like because He's a very proactive and it take an initiative being. And every second of every minute of every hour, he is after you, pursuing you all the time. But religious spirits and our own history of being traumatized and raised in a fallen world, that lie has, has come to dissolve our confidence in a good father. So Jesus is trying to tell the story. So let me just say this. Notice that intrinsic in the story is freedom. God wanted legitimate love to exist between his sons. And in order for that to happen, they had to have the right to take their inheritance and go. I mean, how crushing. But he could not manipulate or control or coerce them because if he did, it, it would not be legitimate love. So God in his love has to let people go if they want to go. So don't think that if there's the, the, the result of freedom in your life has ended up causing great pain that has come in your life, from your life, and from other people. That was not God, is, I guess what I'm trying to say. The damage done to you through omission or commission by your father, by your mother, by other people, by the church was never, never God. The only thing God set up was freedom. And freedom allows for a fallen world. Freedom allows for sickness, for weeds, for death, for the sweat of our brow, and for being abandoned when we shouldn't have been abandoned or being mistreated when we shouldn't have been mistreated. Trauma A, omission. Trauma B, commission. We've all been the recipients of both types of trauma. Even if you had great dads. You could rehearse to me how awesome your dad is, but I'm telling you, I could come back and easily make a case, not that I would, that as great as your dad was, I guarantee you there were times when he should have been more present, emitting more anointing than he did, so there was some form of omission, whether you knew it or not. And no matter what kind of dad you had, he did things to you that he shouldn't have done. Maybe got a little angry or spanked you when he was angry, whatever. I, I've never met a perfect father or mother or anyone else for that matter. So every one of us has to override the demonic conspiracy 
to cause us to believe that God is the author of bad. And really, He's the author of love, which requires freedom, which allows for us to make choices. So the atmosphere, the context of the story is freedom. Freedom. How many of you get that point? This is critical. Don't, uh, don't believe that because there's freedom that opened the door to evil, that God is the author of evil. Don't make that connection because that's not true. I say this, this is good theology. You know, everybody asks me, if God is so good, how come he allows evil in the world? <laughs> how many of you ever asked that question? If you're a thinking person, you've had to ask that question. How could a good God allow evil? If God was all-powerful, why didn't he stop the evil? And he's all-good. He's either all-good or doesn't have power, or he's all-powerful and not all-good. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And the answer is, he's all-good and he's all-powerful. What's the answer? Freedom. Devil bad, God good. Freedom. Freedom allows for bad devil, and freedom allows for good God. God must require moral choice in order for legitimate love to take place. So here we have this context of freedom and the son, one son chooses to, to go into a hedonistic, self-indulgent lifestyle that actually, in, who break culture, could have cost him his life. He could have been stoned to death for committing adultery and, and, and hitting on prostitutes. Okay? Or the other son, which as we see here in the story is even worse. Because the other son, he, he was performing, not loving. He was earning something. It wasn't grace for him. It was, I'm so awesome, you owe this to me. You, you, you owe me this good feeling and this love. I've earned it from, by being good and by performing. And neither one of them is legit. Now the problem is... If you had to choose which one is most dangerous, which one do you think is the most dangerous? The older son. Why? Because. Why? Why is the older son more dangerous? Deceived into thinking that you can earn love and the perception that he's righteous by his own works. So his pride is blinding him. At least the other son was broken. Give me a good old card-carrying pagan, hedonistically committed person any day of the week over a self-righteous um, Pharisee who perceives that they're better than other people and that they can earn God's love. Therefore, they have the right to look down on other folks and to call them out in their sin. Alright, so... Um, the father responds, look... You've always had me. You always have seen me in your presence. But, but your brother needed to know that this love is legitimate. And I went out of my way to go overboard to show him my love. So all the son had to do was follow the right equation, the, the younger son. And here's how the equation works. God initiates love in the context of freedom. He initiated your existence by inspiring one man and to impregnate one woman and for her to carry you to term and to have you. God wanted you whether they did or not. God initiates 
your existence. God has kept you alive this entire time. And even in the state of freedom, God has been watching over you even when wicked and bad things have been done to you, around you. Because He is into your life. God has been initiating a relationship with you every minute of every hour. Whether you knew it or not. And He's been pursuing you. So the Bible teaches, we love because He first loved us. So in the equation and the sequence, God's been initiating love in your life, whether you know it or not. In your warped, wounded thoughts that have been distorted by hell, you've got to know that no matter what you, your mind is up to this point thought, if you think anything other than God's been initiating love with you, you've been deceived. Because God has pursued you. He brought you onto the planet. He's been covering you. He's been loving you and pursuing you. So God initiates. Then he says he's looking for a response. So God initiates and he's looking for a response. Now the only response he's really looking for is belief, is faith, is trust. He's not looking for you to now buy his love and hold it. He's looking for you to reciprocate with, I just want you to believe that I love you. I just want you to reciprocate with love back. I don't want anything. I just want you. I just want your intimacy. I just want you. So God initiates love, and now He wants us to reciprocate and respond back with faith and love, not some religious list of, of duty. Then, it says in Scripture, He responds to our response. Remember the wedding feast. The wedding feast it says they went out to the highways and byways. Anybody could come in. I believe it's God's intent that everyone would be saved. But he says, all you got to do is put on a wedding dress. Now, you know what? You could, make, you could, you could borrow one. You didn't have to be rich to, to, to do the, put on the right garment to come to the wedding. You simply had to respect the scope of what was happening and not treat it like a free meal. You had to recognize it's an actual wedding and, not, and, and you had to come to the God and the wedding on God's terms, not our own. So all God was looking for was a proper response to his invitation to the wedding. And then it says, God responds to their response. If they didn't have the wedding dress, they weren't allowed in. If they didn't respond in faith, they didn't get in. So, you know, in pastoral care, by the way, when you're dealing with a person, you always have to determine which pedal is up. Sometimes people need to know the gospel of God's initiative because they aren't convinced that God loves them. And so you bombard them with the good news of God's pursuing love. But let's say that that message has come through to them, but they're indifferent and casual and they're blowing God off. At that point you go, look sister, look brother, your response to his initiation is unbecoming of the person you're dealing with. You need to respond with respect and honor and faith. Not performance, but respect, honor, and faith. Don't, don't blow God off. In other words, this is a big deal. God of the universe is calling you into intimacy and He's died your death and He shed your blood on the cross. So respond well to this glorious invitation. You know... Um, on a human level, 
How many women um, want to be leftovers for the heart of a man? Or an, an, a, a one of thousands of options. Like, you know, I'm going to reach out to you and flirt with you. And I hope you give me something for my flirting. But I can take you or leave you. Hey, look, you know, um, there, was, there were three other girls I really loved and wanted, but they turned me down. And so, gee, I want to be married. How about you? How, how many women would respond to that? No, it'd be a, you know, it w- they'd respond, but they're like, hey, listen, hey, listen, I deserve, I love this line in a movie, I deserve to be the leading lady in my own movie. And if you're going to treat me like a stagehand, I'm not in this movie. Now, you know, God is a bit, a jealous God. And he comes to his bride and goes, look, I'm, I'm interested in a love affair with you and you alone. And you go, uh, I've got other lovers that I'm looking at. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, you know, I got this ministry gig I can do. I've got this, you know, successful life I got planned. I've got these other idols I need to work after. And you know what? The Lord goes, hey, look, the invitation to marry me is, o- is open. But I'm not going to, that response is inappropriate to who I am as the king of the universe, to the groom of heaven. So when you figure out who I am and who you are, let me know. So God initiates, we respond. But the response needs to be commensurate to the one doing the initiating. You tracking with me? And so now, God initiates, we respond, and then God responds to our response. And what is that response? Come into the wedding! Everything is yours! Here's the signet ring. Cut deals in the kingdom. You're in the family business. Almighty and sons or daughters, and you are the one that can cut deals and bring the kingdom on earth. Oh my gosh! We get to be intimate. You get to know who you are as a royal, as a royal daughter or son. You get to be in the family. You get to have family power and family authority. And you get to make deals and transact things in heaven and pray my kingdom to come and rule and reign on earth. God initiates. You respond properly. God responds to your response. And all of them require proaction. But notice that that God is the player on two out of three. He's the main player. He's the main player throughout the whole story. But there is something about repentance and all repentance does is mean I'm going to change my mind, come to my senses and figure out that life's pretty significant and God's significant and my father's significant and I'm going to, I'm going to do business with him. Now, Satan's number one strategy to knock you off that storyline is to bruise and damage and traumatize your heart with wounded experiences. And he uses your dad to be the primary agent of your damage and your mom and your family. So that's why we have to create a spiritual family to help unmess us up from the impact of our natural family. Now, unfortunately, most people's spiritual families have been more damaging than their natural families and more abusive than ever. And so now we've got double jeopardy and double problems. We're sick on two levels. And our emotions and our perceptions are so warped that it's very, very tough to get our way back into wholeness 
and, and a right relationship with his good father. Our, our hearts have been so hurt by natural fathers and mothers and spiritual fathers and mothers that, you know what, many of us have become hopeless and hope sick. And so we, dis, we slip back into either religious rhythms of attending and going passive or we just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And typically, most people dance between the two of them in any given week. Because in the, in the scheme of life, if we don't have our daddy well anchored in our life, we're going to vacillate between unrighteousness and self-righteousness even within a given day. You just get numb. You get numb. Yeah, well, if you get numb, you've got to fill the numbness with, you know, five or six glasses of wine or a couple of six-packs or, or, or weed or... Yeah, you gotta you gotta escape the pain of abandonment. You see, death is painful. Death death is not a good thing. Spiritual death and disconnect and loneliness is not pleasant. And God built pain into the universe as the warning label to incite us in, in, as incentive to get back to Him. Pain is our friend because pain tells us something's really bad. And if you feel lonely, that's a good thing. Because loneliness is an, is an animating influence for our souls to get right with daddy and right with daddy's family. No matter what it takes. Because in unity and in connection is life. In disconnect is death. So God allows for pain and discomfort to do that. Now here's what's crazy. I remember in my life touching the father, but then I began substituting the father for my the, the inheritance. And I wanted to be to do something great in the kingdom more than I wanted to be with my daddy. And so I substituted ministry for father. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Because the affirmation of people and success in ministry, uh, that, that selfish ambition, ended up co- uh, preempting my intimacy with dad. And God in his goodness let me, let me do enough successful ministry to get a bad taste in my mouth. And all of a sudden I realized, this isn't paying off. This isn't so fun. People aren't that thankful and I'm not that great. And even though I spoke in front of thousands of people and had big churches, it was like there was a flat, um, there was a flatness about it. There, there, there was something that was... Um, that was losing momentum in the midst of ministry. It, the laws of ther- thermodynamics were taking over. Now what I mean by that is the, the universe was built in such a way that it's winding down in energy. The only thing that's winding up in energy is uncreated eternal life called God. So have you ever noticed that when you get a big pop of, of excitement by buying a brand new car or a brand new widget, the smell of it, the feel of it, all of that is exciting, and then all of a sudden the laws of entropy and laws of thermodynamics take over and there's a, there's a wearing down dynamic to it. And the wearing down, the, the, the beginning, the, the, you begin to cycle into... This isn't doing what I thought it was going to do. Now God built that, that, um, that depleting dynamic into everything. Into business, into marriage. How's that for crazy? 
into stuff, into work, you name it. There's not a thing that won't wind down. The only thing that will cause life to wind up and to be exciting is Daddy. Is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and a proper alliance with the family of God. That conducts eternal life. Eternal life is, is uncreated life that's the energy of God flowing out of the throne room. Your spirit was made to wind up and keep winding up in the presence of God. In His presence is joy evermore. And in rightly relating, we can then exchange that eternal life between us. I never look ultimately to a person for my source of life. You are a conduit of life. And the word source is the word for Father. So Father is your source. Abba is your source. And he creates a human agency or conduit for his life to flow in family through connected heart. And in that family, I receive the fruit of the Spirit, wisdom and revelation of the Spirit. I can get corrected and hear truth, be rebuked and corrected and adjusted. And in that family, I can experience power and enablement to do my destiny. But God will never let even ministry replace him. He is life. So what we look for in each other is people that are white hot and passionate with the current of heaven flowing out of them, particularly people that get in front of us, whether it's ministry and teaching or ministry and worship leading or, or ministry and prayer. We want to emit and gush the life of God when no one's looking because why? We've been alone with our daddy. We've had face time with father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That is the animating influence of our life. And if we're wounded, there's a resistance to being intimate with Him because we don't really know what we're going to get if we get in the presence of God. Because when I got in the presence of my dad, I got a backhand. And I got intense anger. And I got volatility and alcoholism. So not all the time, but enough to make life scary. So I had a fear bond with my dad. Not necessarily a love bond. But God wants... But now I've built back a love bond with my dad. I've taken the initiative to build back a love bond where there was fear because it was in my best interest and his to recover a relationship even if it wasn't reciprocated. Do you see what I'm saying? So I had to sow love where there wasn't, where there wasn't pure love. And in order for my own health and development. And I, I had to get my dad to bless me, even if he didn't even understand what that meant. So, the point of the matter is, if there's a residual resistance to intimacy with Father, or an unconscious incompetence to where your life drifts day in and day out with, without intimacy with the Lord, that's a sign that there's a wounding that's dulled your spirit. And you want to go and get per, uh, ongoing prayer and healing so that there's a re, rediscovery of this intimate, good, fun, gentle Father that loves you no matter what. And He is not judging you. He is not looking at your sin. He is not focusing on your false self. That has been handled. He only wants you to be intimate with Him. And that's the story of the prodigal. So your Abba loves and is now pursuing you. 
And He is going to melt down all of the deception that has been embedded in your soul so that you have an ongoing intimacy with this incredibly loving being in Jesus' name. Now we're going to take a minute and we're going to just speak Father's blessings over each other. And those of you that are listening, I'd like you to get with someone else and just prophesy to them how God feels. Yesterday morning, we were on the phone uh, with our Tim and Janet prayer shield. And um, I'm not exactly sure how the topic came up, but it, as I was, we were talking about praying for Janet and I, and I was talking about some of the needs I had, out of the blue, Carol Meyer said a prophecy that got, about me that God had given her one year ago that she had never shared with me. She had written it out, and she had it right there with her. So on the phone, she speaks the heart of the Father over my life, over the phone. There I am, upstairs in my prayer room office, and the power of the Father's heart hits me on the phone, and I start weeping under the goodness of God, and I can't stop. I'm, I'm like weeping and weeping and weeping because that fatherly affirmation was such a rare thing in my life that when out of the blue God spoke His love for me, when I'm so conscious of my weakness, my sin, my, you know, my dork factor, and my incompetency, and here out of the blue, none of that came through in this prophecy. It was all rivetingly positive, almost scary complimentary. She was eulogizing me in a way that almost made me sound like a regal divine being when in reality I'm a son of God. I know I'm not God, but she was speaking so prominently about me, so positively about me. I said, I, I don't even, that, that was embarrassing. I don't even know that, Tim. But from God's vantage point, all he sees is awesome. All he sees is good. All he sees is amazing. He sees nothing that would repulse him. Nothing that would turn him away. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. He went after me. He loves me. He's not dealing with any of that. All, the only way he sees me is how awesome I am. <clears throat> and, you know, who wants to hang around with somebody that doesn't like him? Do you like to be around people that think you're a little bit of a scuzz bucket? Like, do you like to hang around people that don't celebrate you? Absolutely not. You only want to be around people. I mean, you are drawn to people that are life-giving who literally celebrate your life and refuse to relate to you based upon your weakness. And when they sow that love into you, you find an irresistible attraction to them and you're drawn magnetically into that relationship. Why? Because they're telling you who they are and you secretly like it. Why? Because that really is who you are. So when you get around somebody that good newses you with their face and their hugs and their love and their words and believes in you and speaks your identity to you and welcomes you into their life and says, I want you. And, and they go, well, don't you remember when I blew it the other day? I said, no, not really. I flushed that down the toilet. The minute it came out, we got it all. I, I pushed the delete button. What are you talking about? I don't even remember what you're talking about. Well, yeah, but it was pretty embarrassing. What are you talking about? I don't even remember that. Why are you preoccupied with your yesterday? God isn't. I'm not. 
But I mean, I really, I really did some bad stuff. I really saw, thought some bad things. And God goes, I, I literally, as far as the east is from the west, I've removed this from you. I, please, I don't even know what you're jabbering about, you're mumbling about. Would you please shut your mouth and come and give me a big old smack kiss on my lips? Let's get with it. Let's love. Let's have fun. And by the way, the word worship means to kiss forward. You don't kiss somebody that you think hates your guts. Or doesn't like you. Proskuno, is, it means to kiss forward. And that's why we've got to be the people that when we get together, we kiss on God and He feels the kisses. We feel His kisses and we kiss Him back. I mean wet ones. Long ones. Juicy ones. Passionate and intimate ones. Because out of the heart come the issues of life. That's who your dad is. He's a kissing He's a, he's a kissing, pursuing, adoring being. That's how he feels about you. And that's what we're going to speak over each other. So I remember getting nervous about prophecies. And you know why? Because I was around Old Testament prophets that did not understand New Testament prophecy. And all their prophecies were, were how, how you stinketh, how bad you were, you know, how disappointed God was, and how you needed to repent. And I'm like... Something about it scared the bejeebies out of me because it was, it was demonic and accusatory. And then, when I get around New Testament prophets, they're the ones that create something out of nothing. They tell you who you really are, and their words create what they say. And they don't speak from a platform of, you sucketh. They speak from the platform of, you're awesome in, in Jesus. God only sees you through the filter and the lens of Jesus. He doesn't see you through any other lens than that one. So you don't have to be nervous about God or prophecy. Not in this house. Because we're built on the grace and mercy of God. We're a family that's legitimate before God. That will only reveal the Father heart. At least most of the time a couple of people will be nincompoops. But if they are, we will lovingly correct them. So that they stop misrepresenting the Father's heart. So I'm going to pray for those listening, and then I would like you to get with some people. We're going to do that after I turn this message off, and we're going to pray for each other and prophesy the Father heart. So Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, just grab the hand of the person you're next to. Know that you're with someone worthy of Jesus' death and life. You're with royalty, holding the hand of royalty. Father, I thank you for this royal princess, this royal prince, this son of royalty that Jesus Christ died for and that on their finger is the signet ring of the family's business. They belong to the family. They're loved no matter what they've done. And God, I thank you that you're this kind of father and that you can dissolve the yesterday pain and the lies. And I ask you to dismantle the embedded lies that have come into our soul that have misrepresented what you're like I ask that you dissolve them and flush them out of our soul and rebuild our souls, our minds, our hearts on the truth that you're a good father, that you pursue us, that you love us, that you're not looking at our sin, that you're not looking at us with judgment or disgust, that you adore us so that we can run to you because that's who you are. Thank you, Father, for this moment on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.